Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please also visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Jana Kalarik, to introduce our guest, Angie Caldwell from PYA, to talk about the changes to the Stark Law and anti-kickback statute since their first discussion back in 2019. That prior episode will be linked in the description of this episode and on healthcarelawtoday.com. Take it away, Jana. Thanks, Judy. So this is Jana Kalarik. I'm a partner in Foley's Jacksonville, Florida and Washington, D.C. offices. I am a healthcare compliance and regulatory attorney and have been for over 20 years. Uh, relevant to today's podcast, I address uh, federal physician self-referral or Stark Law, as well as federal anti-kickback statute issues for a range of providers, suppliers, manufacturers, and distributors. So Angie, can you give us a little bit of your background? Absolutely. Hi, Jana. This is Angie Caldwell. I am the managing principal of PYA's Tampa office. I spend probably 95% of my time in physician compensation, valuation, physician hospital integration, and related uh, matters. Wonderful. So, in today's podcast, just um, so the audience knows, is really a follow-up to um, a 2019 podcast that Angie and I did also for Let's Talk Compliance. And that one was really a nice primer. Um, and I recommend folks go back and, and look at the transcript, which is online, or, or listen to the podcast itself. It gives about 45 minutes of some good background to these fair market value and commercial reasonableness discussions that we're going to sort of uh, tee off of today. All right, so let's dive in, Angie. So excited to be doing this with you again. Yay. Yay, me too. (laughs) For today's subject matter, frankly relevant to the audience, um, this is sort of a fair market value and commercial reasonableness discussion. Um, We are now in 2021. Our prior discussion was in 2019. Want to talk a little bit about how the changes to the Stark Law um, and to the anti-kickback statute may have affected some of the things that you're dealing with in your valuation world. Absolutely. So you know the new Stark and anti-kickback regulations were highly uh, waited for. I mean, we were so ready for those regulations and really hoped that they would bring about a significant change in, in the way that um, that valuation was approached from a compensation perspective and, and all. We didn't really get that um, with the changes to the, to the regulations. We, we got a lot of cleanup. Uh, you know, at least from my perspective, uh, we got a lot of clean cleanup. The definitions were tweaked. All of, all of the cleanup was very important. Don't get me wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, from a valuation perspective, perhaps a few things were tweaked, but big sweeping 
changes um, really didn't come about in the new regulations, perhaps related to the to the value based exceptions, which we'll talk right. about in a minute. Mm-hmm. That was probably the mm-hmm. biggest change. Um, but but overall, there was a lot of cleanup. So definitions, you know, the definitions got changed. So from a valuation perspective, we're looking at those valuation, those definitions and updating our reports. But again, that's not a big change. Um, you know, the one of the things that tweaked our approach a little bit and, and perhaps our service offering a little bit was related to the con the, the big two concepts in the prior reg- regulation of FMV and CR is now the big three concepts of FMV, CR, and volume or value. Because mm-hmm. they split it out. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, now uh, from a valuation perspective, most of the time we're asked to provide an opinion on fair market value. Some of the time we're asked to provide an assessment of commercial reasonableness, but now we could also be asked to provide an assessment or an, or an opinion related to, to volume or, or value. Um, so that was broken out. That's a, that's a little bit different. Um, and, and CMS was helpful with that because they developed a two-part test, um, you know, so that folks could take a look at it and, and determine if their, um, if their compensation methodology was or was not in compliance. Um, but, but I'm sure there are some, some gray areas out there where, where some folks would like to have um, an outside third party take a take a look at it with them um so that was a little bit of a change and then what i alluded to probably the biggest change that came out of these regulations was the was the value-based exceptions um change so are you seeing a lot of activity um with a lot of questions or a lot more questions than you had seen in the past related to value-based arrangements not yet. Oh, interesting. <laughs> not oh. yet. We have not seen a windfall of, of entities trying to use this particular exception. I, I don't know if it is um, entities have been distracted just from the, you know, the ongoing um, pandemic, the, the virus. They've got other things on their on their minds. Uh, you know, it could be that they are, you know, absorbing it, I I think that it will be an exception that is going to start getting some traction, um, especially perhaps in with certain specialties like radiation oncology. Um, With the new radiation oncology model implementation starting um, in January 2022, that might expedite some value-based exceptions activity in this last half of 2021, um, but, but we have not seen uh, extensive use or, or analysis surrounding that exception yet. How about you? Well, no, not a lot. I mean, there's been discussion. I do wonder a little bit if some of those discussions are happening more behind the scenes um, and more with payers, frankly, you know, to try to set out certain arrangements or start the the ball rolling because frequently those discussions can take months, if not years, to really come to fruition. So that may be that may be where we're seeing it. We've seen more discussion and I think more thoughtful discussion around some of the uh, value-based aspects of comp just generally. Um, so I think there's been more thoughtfulness 
provided related to, you know, not just traditional WRVU or hourly comp, but rather some of those panel formation issues and, and some of those quality issues than frankly I've seen in the past. How about you? I would totally agree. And if nothing else, even if the value-based exception is not utilized, the regulation does a good job describing value-based incentives and what metrics and measures. And if nothing else, that framework is is important and could be foundational uh, for, for an organization because as I'm sure you experienced as well, you know, a few years ago when the industry started talking about value-based incentives and value-based metrics, organizations ran to put those in their agreements just as quickly as they could because they wanted they wanted to show that they're, and you know, again, it's paying attention to the industry, paying attention to going on, you know, what's going on around you and really getting your physicians accustomed to being at risk for for such things, mm-hmm. such quality metrics. Mm-hmm. And so organizations ran to put that in and and at times maybe ahead of what their data systems could could measure and support. And you know, so if nothing else, the regulation provides a nice framework for people to take a look at as far as improvement year over year. You know, the regulation talks about how there should be a, a change, right, there should right. be opportunity for modification, improvement, et cetera. And I, I think that that's very important too. Good change out of the regulation. Yeah, totally, totally agree. One of the things you and I have been talking out about quite a bit lately is the impact of the 2021 uh, Medicare physician fee schedule on compensation. So let's talk a little bit about what you've seen related to maybe employed physician modeling as well as um, PSAs or independent contractor physician modeling related to that. You bet. So if if 2020 wasn't difficult enough <laughs> with with the with the pandemic, with the shutdowns, with uh, the new uh, Stark regs and and anti kickback uh, uh, regulations and guidance, we also had a significant change in the 2021 Medicare physician fee schedule. And I'm sure all of our our listeners are groaning and 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 shaking their their heads at, at this. And so in a nutshell, um, for those that might be familiar, um, but but what happened was in, in the course of, of that update, um, certain work RVUs, especially for ENM services, evaluation and management services, um, were significantly increased. As the fee schedule is budget neutral, there was an offsetting uh, conversion factor payment decrease um, to make it, again, budget neutral for, for Medicare. So this, of course, creates havoc on an employed physician um, who is compensated on a work RVU model or a professional services agreement uh, that uses work RVUs for its payment structure, payment foundation. So, uh, so if you think about that and, and, and all that, that goes into that work RVUs substantially increasing 
contractual conversion factor within the physician's agreement staying contractual, staying the same, but reimbursement changing only for Medicare. Um, because again, this is a Medicare change. So only to the extent that your other payer agreements are tied to Medicare, um, would those change? So they're paying along as they always have. So the increase in um, collections due to the increase in work RVUs for these specialists um, with, with increased work RVUs is not enough to offset the potential impact to the physician's compensation. Right. So without some kind of mitigation um, on, on part of the employer, um, either through the contract, um, it could create some significant um, compensation increases for the for the impacted specialties, uh, as well as increased physician practice losses um, for those specialties. So let's talk about who this is impacted specifically. So who is who benefited? from the changes in the modeling. And when I say benefited, who, who had an increase in the WRVUs um, that they're recognizing as of 2021? Right, it, mostly your primary care type physicians. So uh, family medicine, internal medicine, endocrinology, rheumatology, uh, all big winners um, in this change um, from from CMS. It, you know, I don't like to call anybody a loser, but from a if you had to have a column of winners and losers on the on the other side of the uh, deck on the other side of the equation, uh, the losers were the were the proceduralists. So the folks that do not do as many EM codes that are mostly proceduralists. Those were the folks that that took a hit. And again, all of this within CMS's world has to be budget neutral. So if you add to one place, you have to, to take away um, from, from another. Right, right. And so when you and I have spoken about this um, in the past, a lot of compensation models for physicians are based on WRVUs. I mean, it's not uncommon in industry for that to be for that to be standard. So, because of these changes and because of what the increase in WRVUs, especially for those um, family medicine type um, specialties. What are what are you seeing your your clients having to do? Are they having to freeze um, the conversion factor? Are they having to switch models? Are they how how are folks reacting to this to this change? Predominantly, what we have seen out there is that folks have frozen their work RVU calculation to the twenty twenty schedule. Uh, they have deferred implementing 2021, which is a great idea because it allows the organization time to assess the impact and prepare contractually for changes that may have to occur going forward into 2022 and, and beyond. Others are 
assessing the impact and to the extent that it is affordable for them, uh, then they are assessing it more purely from a, a fair market value and commercial reasonableness perspective. They're taking a look at that and saying, okay, what, what does this mean? And is it still FMV and CR? To the extent then that they're having to make changes to the individual physician contract, um, they are either lowering the conversion factor in the contract. But again, as you know, Jana, that's a contract change. Mm -hmm. That's not just a, oh, hey, by the way, we're going to do this. Well, and it makes sense. I mean, and and I've seen folks um, changing their comp plans. I mean, I think it was some of these um, entities had the same compensation plan for years. And so this is an opportunity for them to revisit it, to get buy-in from the physicians, to really explain and be transparent with the process, which in my mind is the best way to go. What have you seen uh, from a reaction perspective, because obviously with some larger system or just even hospitals, this can be incredibly impactful from a contracting perspective. And, and the family practice physicians that you talked about are incredibly important to the system. So have they been um, dealing with comp plans? Have they been coming to you just to try to figure out lay of the land and then addressing the contractual issues themselves? Have you been brought in? I, I find you effective in sort of helping or being another voice uh, to lend to the expertise in this area, right? To get the transparent message across as to why things are changing. So what have you seen? What have you seen? Absolutely. And it's, you know, from a, from an operations perspective, from a physician practice operations perspective, we have seen impacts um, because of this change for one physician uh, upwards of $80,000. So if you can take that then, and then based upon other analyses and case studies that we've done, on average, we're in, again, in this category of physicians, your primary care type specialties in this category of physicians, on average, it could be approximately a $20,000 impact to increase to physician compensation. So if you take $20,000 over a multitude of physicians, a number of employed physicians, this is incredibly impactful uh, for a uh, for a physician practice, which may already be at a net loss position. So this isn't, it isn't just from a, from a practice perspective, it's not, it's, it's a compensation, balancing the compensation to the physician and paying the physician fairly and within fair market value, but it's also a commercial reasonableness issue, right? Because then all of a sudden, Whereas the new Stark regs actually talked about this a little bit, um, you know, while you while you can still have you can be commercially reasonable and be in a in a loss position, at some point it it, it isn't just well, but how big of a loss can you take um, for long-term viability of the hospital, for the health system, for the practice, you know, how much of a loss um, can, can you handle? I mean, at some point while, you know, again, the regs helped us by clarifying that you can have a loss uh, with an arrangement and still be commercially reasonable, there is a 
there is some kind of a, you still have to assess the amount of the loss. At some point it will become um, not commercially reasonable at, at some some point. So, but back to your, your original question, which was what are organizations doing related to their, to their compensation plans? It, you know, they're really looking at this and saying, okay, work RVUs have, they've changed every year. This wasn't a new thing that CMS did in 2021 with the Medicare physician fee schedule. It's just that it was a significant impact and change. And looking out into 2022 with the new proposed um, Medicare physician fee schedule that just came out, it's going to happen again, perhaps, um, in the proposal. So uh, folks are starting to look at the work RVU maybe with not as much love as they have in the past. Um, the work RVU was easy. It was standard. They could explain it. They could track it. There's decent benchmark data out there related to it from a compensation perspective. And all of a sudden folks aren't as in love with the work RVU perhaps as they once were. So organizations are starting to take a look at their compensation plans and their methodologies and thinking, do all of our physicians or do these certain specialties or groups of physicians, do they still really need to be on a work RVU model? And is there another model that would perhaps be better for them going forward? Yeah, interesting. And I wonder, tell me a little bit about how deferring that impact and sort of sticking with the 2020 um, RVUs potentially could cause issues for folks later, sort of kicking the can, especially with what you mentioned about the 2022 changes that are coming down the pike. Right. So, you know, we're in, in August um, and looking out then into 2022, you know, again, think about what the, what communication was made to your physicians about the, the timing related to the deferral. Did, was the communication just one year or was it, was it indefinitely? Because at some point a decision is going to have to be made. And if 2022 sticks to the same, you know, the proposal as, as, as they have it now, then you're going to really be two years in away from the measurement that you're using. In 2022, you're going to be looking back to 2020, the 2020 fee schedule um, for your for your measurements. At some point, um, just philosophically, the organization will need to think about how far they want to get away from that measurement because those measurements and the changes that CMS made were not made in a vacuum. There are reasons behind why those work RVU values were, were increased. CMS recognized that the services provided by these primary care physicians uh, for these services, they are taking longer and they require more effort than what they had previously estimated. So at what point, how far out do you, does the organization want to get away um, from the most current and contemporary measurement? Um, that's the question. Um, two, we have some benchmark data concerns, right? So, and you know how I love to talk about benchmark data, <laughs> 
I know you do. Tell, <laughs> tell me how it's been affected, Angie. Tell me. So, so let's talk about some benchmark data. So think about everything that has happened in our industry. So again, so the the 20 the surveys that come out in 2020 are reporting on 2019 data. So your 2020 surveys reporting on 2019 data do not have the impacts of the pandemic in it. The surveys coming out in 2021 will have the impact of the pandemic in 2020 in that data. So that data is gonna be a little bit mushy if as, as a technical term, mushy because of the pandemic. Also, so then in 2021, which will come out in 2022, you're going to have the mushiness from the Medicare physician fee schedule impact. So when then the question becomes, when is the next time that the benchmark survey data won't have this mushiness in it? Um, so the 2019 data reported in 2020 might be the quote unquote last time for a while that we don't have that noise in the data, especially if the 2022 Medicare physician fee schedule proposal does what it says it's going to do. It, we could be out some time. So it's just another indication in the, in the regs and the commentary. I know that's really, I, I read the the regulations, the Stark and anti-kickback, the commentary, CMS talked about benchmark data and how fair market value wasn't a percentile. And, you know, so as the survey data gets mushy, we're just really going to have to be, pay attention um, to how much mushiness is in that survey data as we're, we're taking a look at fair market value. Well, and I think that's a good point, Angie. I mean, because a lot of people, some of these decisions, it's nice to have you sort of there, um, counseling folks, but for some of these general decisions or these sort of things that in the past have been uh, decisions that were made very quickly by looking at some of the survey data and usually, hopefully, multiple surveys, not just one, um, how are folks going to be dealing with that? Because they may get their MGMA data, they may get their, you know, I'm not going to name other ones, but several different sources of survey data. How are they supposed to, will there be guidance within the data that they receive that lets them know how they need to be interpreting it? Is that something that folks should be talking to you about with regard to, should I take 2019 data and then look at this many months of 2020. How should folks really be thinking about that? That's an outstanding question. So the surveys that are coming out in 2021 reporting on 2020 data, the surveys are doing a very good job with their commentary around um, it. You know, again, they always do a great job providing information on the the data respondents who's answering the survey and, and where they're from. But the surveys that have come out so far in 2021 are providing, a, you know, a brief executive summary, if you will, about about how they gathered their data, which is similar to prior years, but they're also providing some commentary on how that data may have been impacted um, by the by the pandemic. And, and really for those folks that, 
most folks, most entities have a process and they have, they receive their surveys annually and they have a process by which they review them and look at them and accumulate the data. Um, you know, this year, especially, they'll just have to have a more mindful eye as they're, as they're comparing year over year. Um, significant changes need to be investigated, need to be really uh, thought thought through to the extent they want another set of eyes on it or some other interpretation or, or clarification. Um, of course, of course, we do that and, and have done that. Um, and just taking a look at the, the impact of, of the pandemic and on, on the virus on those specialties and the data. Yeah, no, I think that's super helpful. And hopefully we'll, we'll be helpful in guiding folks that are listening. Um, let's talk a little bit about the COVID, the pandemic's impact on practices, um, selling, and and maybe how that has affected um, physicians' expectations related to what practices are worth, what compensation they should be receiving. Um, Because I know we've spoken about this um, in the past. I wanted to get some insight from you as to maybe how that has changed or affected the landscape. Yes, wowie, right? <laughs> and, and bless those providers out there that had to pivot on an absolute dime at the onset of all of the all of the the chaos, um, really that occurred, you know, over over twelve months ago at this point. But significant impacts to their their independent private practices. Um, you know, they had to, to worry about their professional staff. They had to worry about their patients and getting them in. Um, perhaps these independent private practices made a switch, what probably felt like overnight to a telemedicine um, platform. So much going on. Then all of the other business concerns, maybe these independent private practices um, applied for and received a a triple P loan um, that became available. They received uh, PRF funds. So all of a sudden, there are all of these new business and environmental pressures on these independent physician practices as if managing patients, managing the healthcare and the the lives of their patients wasn't enough and the management of their practice, they have all of this too. And honestly, we've seen some physicians say, that's it, I'm out. I can't, I cannot do this anymore. I I want to spend the time with my patients and I cannot do both well anymore. Um, and so I have to, I have to, I have to sell, I have to get out. Um, you know, not the practice, some practices said we managed, you know, we got through it, we're going to be okay. And an absolute wonderful kudos to them. Um, but we have seen some practices say that's it. I'm out. And, and so, and they're those independent private practices on the other side of all of this, of course, they, um, they are looking into all of the things that they have to do for their, for their triple P, their PRF reporting and, and all of that. And so they continue to have these environmental and in, industry um, pressures and, and things that they, that they have to take care of. But, you know, it's, it's just interesting to watch whether, folks are going to sell or whether they're going to move. And of course that introduces then the whole 
the whole private equity part of our industry uh, and how active uh, private equity uh, was active prior to the pandemic. And they are very active now uh, related to the acquisition and, and accumulation of, of private practices. So how is that when you, and when you see, uh, because I'm sure you've dealt with um, the private equity aspect um, with this, which, you know, I think is is just part of the environment now. But how has it affected prices for or what what practices are selling at, as well as how has it affected compensation? Because um, that's one of the things you and I have spoken about a little bit, and and how private equity and and how their compensation model may have maybe a shift, a big shift in some of these environments that hospital system, health systems have to then react to. Absolutely. So when private equity is looking at an independent practice, they are able to um, perhaps do things from an economic standpoint that others in the market from a purchase perspective may not be able to do. So they may be able to um, financially, from a capital perspective and from a regulation perspective, um, do, do some things differently. And so it's, it's created a, a pressure um, out there um, from, a, from a hospital perspective then, who is also looking to perhaps employ these physicians and integrate with these physicians as to the, you know, the balance between what that not-for-profit health system can do and what the, what the private equity um, organization can do. So when you're thinking about the value of a physician practice, um, clearly it's more complicated than what we have time to, to go through on this, on this podcast today. But a, a lot of the value, other than for the tangible assets, for the touchable assets within the practice, a lot of the value, it, of course, ancillary services, which we have to set over to the side and take a look at differently. A lot of the value of the physician practice rests with the physician. And that value then rests and is measured in what the physician is able to pay themselves through their practice, as well as what they would be able to earn in compensation outside their practice. So then that's where it becomes a little bit more complicated than when you're looking at that physician compensation um, within the practice, because then other factors come into play, right? From an operations perspective, why wasn't that physician able to pay themselves more? Well, because of all these other things, and then that, that comes into the, into the equation. And so then it becomes really interesting because private equity comes in with a different model with a different perception and the ability to do some things different from a, from a compensation structure perspective than perhaps what others can. So then the compensation is different. It can become very different than from a recruiting perspective. Everyone has to be on their toes, right? Because private equity is saying, oh, we can give you this much in a compensation package and then the not-for-profit health system has to say, we can offer you a different amount in, in compensation. And then you have to, then the physician is left to compare the two 
from a recruiting perspective, it's going to be very important for the not-for-profit health system to the extent they want to continue to employ and integrate in that space to be able to show the value of their competitive offer. Why it is competitive, not just from a dollar's perspective, but from maybe a a mission perspective, maybe from a long-term perspective, all of of the ways that then they have to show that their their offer is is competitive. It's going to be very interesting to see how all of this shakes out. And, and of course, there's, there are supply and demand issues as well in, in this visit. So we've all heard for years that the number of physicians in the market is declining. Physicians are retiring and they're not being replaced. And we have more people that need more healthcare services. So Again, as the supply and demand plays out in markets with heavy private equity, it's just going to be interesting to see where the compensation and where the where all of that shakes out. And I wish I had, I wish I had the magic um, crystal ball on this one, but it's it's going to be a a long term shakeout as far as where all of this ends up. Right. No, and it makes sense. And I and I agree with you. So one thing that you that you mentioned, um, and all very helpful, but this is really comparing apples to oranges when you compare private equity um to health system, to nonprofit health system. I mean, it's it is a different mindset. And the sale based just on comp can turn out one way, but looking at it holistically, um, I agree with you is important and it's important for health systems to be focused on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's about the messaging um, regarding that offer and all of, all of the elements within it. And it does become very confusing. Uh, for the for the physicians, so we we often help physicians when they are taking a look at multiple offers. We we will help them compare the the offers because depending upon how they are presented and how they are brought forward, sometimes it's not clear. And and so you try to you in the in the fruit salad and the apples and oranges you you try to align the the fruit as best as you can, um, and at some some. Sometimes you you can't, and then that's when you get into the qualitative factors behind the the offer as well. Absolutely, no, that makes total sense. So, is there anything that we haven't touched on? You and I again have had multiple conversations about these issues. Is there anything that that we've touched on in our conversations that we want to make sure that that our listeners uh, benefit from? Uh, Jana, I think we've hit on the biggest hot topics um, right now. And, uh, you know, we'll just keep our eye on other hot topics going forward. And, and who knows, may have an opportunity for, a, for another podcast with those hot topics in the future. I would love it. Yeah, always enjoy this. Thank you, Angie, as always. It's, it's been so great spending time with you and discussing um, these hot topics. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jana. Great. Judy, back to you. Thank you, Jana. And thank you, Angie, for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, 
And we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley and Lardner. We appreciate you joining us.